How's it, everyone? A man named Jones went into a bar in Wales, asked everyone, is there a guy named Jones in here? Actually, what I'm here is with Nick Bishop, the only man in this bar not named Jones, named Jones, and we're in this tiny town of Neath, which is near Swansea, which is near Cardiff, and we're having a chat. How's it, Nick? Very good, Harry. How are you? Good. Good to see you in the flesh. Thanks for buying me a beer. And a lot of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it had to happen, didn't it? Had to happen. To set the scene, we're in a bar in the Castle Hotel, which is in the womb of Welsh rugby. I believe this is where the originating documents for Welsh rugby union were signed. Is this right? right, yes, in the 1880s. So we're talking about 130, 140 years of history, all embedded in this one hotel. It feels like it. It feels like an old, old place. Nick has come down the hill from his from his farm, uh, walking, biking. What? Oh no, I came by car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's ruined the image, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but there are the corpses of old Welsh rugby union presidents buried along the cladding in the walls. This is auspicious. And people hated them anyway, so there's a lot of them. <laughs> So Nick, you've written um, you've written about uh, one hundred no three hundred and fifty seven articles on the Roar, probably about five hundred in other periodicals. Two point two eight million views. I looked at your article titles, and it's why and how, and here's why and what now. These are your questions usually. Um, is is that the way you think about rugby? Are you always trying to unwrap or uncover the reason behind the reason, the moments in the match that turned the match? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I remember best about uh, my rugby education is something that Wayne Smith said, and he said, I always give away knowledge for free because then it forces me to learn something new. And that's the way I feel about it. So I ask myself questions. I try and give us give away as much knowledge as I can to the readers, mm. and that makes them want to read more, and it makes me want to learn more about the game. So yeah, it's true. Whenever every time I I had to teach a, a class, I learned more than my students. Yeah, uh, and it was actually quite frustrating sometimes because I had to take something which I thought was obvious and say, but why is it obvious? Yeah. And undress it. That's what they always say about education, isn't it? That the, the best teachers learn as much as their students. That's it. So that's what I do. You know, I, I learn a lot from people on the raw. You know, the, you know, that's why I get involved in the forums and the, the posts afterwards, is because I really learn a lot about rugby and other aspects of life from the people I talk to. It's a nice community. There's some knuckleheads, but, um, you know, what do you do? Like you said before, sometimes you just take it on the chin and move on and don't, don't engage. But, um, or you give them a pummeling. One of the <laughs> so you have an academic background. You have a PhD in uh, English literature. Is this yeah. correct? So, and you've just given me a wonderful book about Persian poetry, something we both share an interest in. Um, how do you find you apply this type of scholastic background to this you know, beautiful, brutal ballet that we study, rugby? Um. Well, I like the fact that it engages my research faculty for a start. So, you know, what I've done is research at universities for five years. I was teaching and also doing PhDs. And uh, that gets your juices going to the forensic aspect of trying to get to the bottom of something. 
Now, I've always been interested in sport, so rugby was my first love. So I just turned that spotlight onto rugby. Right. And I found there was this magical kind of synthesis whereby all of a sudden what I, I learned in university actually had a point. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just esoteric knowledge. No, exactly. Yeah. But it is esoteric in a sense that a lot of it is psychological as well. So when you look at rugby, the beauty is not just in the physical aspect, but also the psychology and how it alters over the course of a game. First one side has the momentum, then the other side has the momentum. Right. And you see how the mentality of a team wins most of the games. It seems like in your um, in your studies of the games, you find moments that are emblematic of a trend. And you have a diagram, you have a schematic, but you're pointing to five, six, seven um, moments that follow a trend that turn the match or they brought the match, you know, the way of the winner. Is that how you think of the game? Uh, in other words, it's we're not a stop-start start game as much as some. You study the NFL. NFL is the classic stop-start. But there are breaks, and there are moments where you are doing platforms. So, are you are you looking at these things as saying, ah, there's something that that coach didn't anticipate, but this one did, or the co or the, the the player changed that trend? Yeah, I mean. You're I think coaches are always looking for determinants in a game, things that change the course of games, whether it's in their favour or against them. So when they do their presentations to their players on the Monday after a game on Saturday, they're always going to try and highlight these moments where something turns, something changes. Right. So that's what I try and do in a kind of potted form for the articles, is to distill these moments where people can see quite clearly that something in the game transformed and it wasn't the same anymore. And there's always these games, these moments existent in a game. You just have to find the kind of most uh, distilled ones, if you like. From a South African point of view, that moment that changes the game is usually where I, I smash you with my shoulder <laughs> through your chest and your sternum experiences ecstasy and pain. Well, we're much more refined in Wales. We, we do the sidestep first, then we smash you with the shoulder when Got the referee's it. not looking. Got so. it. Speaking of, uh, so we're here on the, the eve of the Welsh trying to spoil the French dream of this kind of rolling juggernaut. No one can stop them. It would be just like the Welsh, wouldn't it? Just like them to have a vaguely disappointing season and then say, oh, but we're going to spoil your little merry march to the, the parade. Uh, they, they'd like to do it, but I, I have to say I give them less than a 10 to 15 percent chance because I just think the French are in, on such a roll now. And, and Wales just don't have the players, you know, especially up front. You look at the type five, yeah. there's no one there that yeah. you say, oh, I'd like him in my team, right? Or I'd like him running our line out, or I'd like him anchoring our scrum. And this is where rugby starts, as you know. If you don't have a type five, you cannot play rugby. Right. This is what Wales are going to find, that they're suddenly opposed by the land of giants, all dressed in blue, coached yeah. by a Lancastrian, you know, with a broad <laughs> accent, who can't make himself understood except by kind of ripping people. <laughs> and it's going to be a tough ask for them. There's a wonderful piece you wrote for another... another uh publication about that, shall be nameless. about that that moment where Sean Edwards is trying to express himself in French. It's monosyllabic, it's fragmentary. <laughs> but the players get the point of the little the little moments 
this inch here, this inch there, pushing something. Uh, you talk a lot about the cumulative effect of a, of a strategy or a tactic. And it looks like to me that Wales doesn't have a tight five at all tonight. They have a tight three at best. Scotland has the same problem. They got pushed around. Ireland seems the only Celtic nation right now that can put, you know, a tight five plus plus five. So you have the ten; they can run out there and yeah. and smash and grab. Well, Ireland had the benefit of cohesion. You know, as Eddie Jones was saying last week, they got the benefit of they play as a club side, and the guys who come in all know what's expected of them in that that formula. Right. Um, but they've got some good tight forwards. You know, they've got the best tight head in the world, Tag Tag Furlong. But Andrew Porter is injured at the moment. Um, you've got Tag Burn, outstanding European second row. So there's a core there of people that you can really depend on. And Wales don't have that. France have it. I mean, he's probably one of the best. You're forgetting France Malherbe, the sweatiest <laughs> prop in the world, who will, who will wear you down just with his sheer excretion of sweat. I mean... But Tad can do so many things to you, you know. No, he lost. He can scrum you, he <laughs> can sidestep you, he can pass the ball beyond you. you but Fra France lost. You pick your choice of death. He lost eight kilograms in one match in Japan. That's a it's a world record. Wow. It's documented. <laughs> <laughs> they were thinking of taking him to the hospital. He's <laughs> <laughs> probably still there. Speaking of your esoteric uh, interests, um, I see that you pull from. NFL coaches, from music, from different sports. Is there something that is common to this thing we do as humans? I mean, we have art, we celebrate, we eat, we, we do things, but we, we tend to have a sport. Every culture seems to have something. Uh, what is this thing that you find so interesting about this competitive, ritualistic, law-driven, code-driven sport that we, that we follow? I think ultimately it comes down to a sense of community, doesn't it? And it's not just a community within a sport, it's community between sports as well. And I think all the sports that pound hell out of each other, you know, like NFL. Collision sports, yeah. Rugby league. Yeah. Uh, even basketball, you know, they've got a point of um, uh, commonality, shall we say, yes. where the people who've ever played those sports know what it feels like to come off a field feeling absolutely exhausted, battered, bruised, and drink that first glass of beer. Exactly. And feel that you've really earned it. Because there's nothing like Cheers to that. <laughs> <laughs> The, the moments, not the moments before it too, when you know what's coming, uh, I remember I had teammates that would spend, you know, 10 minutes on, on the loo just heaving, just upchucking, because they knew what was coming. Others were very quiet. Some were very hyperactive and they would walk around and dance and sing and whatever. It's, it's interesting how we all deal with the same yeah. stress. And I learned, you know, my rugby career such as it was that the guys you always had to be wary of were not the ones that are kicking the toilet door down but the ones who are just quietly having a fag in the corner <laughs> I was always an upchuck guy I, I literally had to I had so much um, rage built up and ready to go that I had to get it out yeah. and, after, and my, my teammates would always realise that's good Harry's Harry's, <laughs> Harry's purging <laughs> he's going to be okay so, uh, just quick moments here as we have a few pot shots. Michael Checker, uh, not Felipe Contepomi, is the Los Pumas coach. Any uh, any reaction to that? 
Well, he knows the culture now, doesn't he? Yeah. He's been around that uh, that group for about what a year, two years now. Right. So I think he's got the benefit of knowing what he's getting into, and I think his passion will communicate itself well to the Latin mentality. So it's also a short run from now to the cup, to World, yeah. to World Cup. He's often been very good at that type of uh, innings. Early stimulation, isn't he? Yeah. All about early stimulation. Us against them. Yeah. Uh, style of play, I was looking at some of this, the trying group, you know, the, the blitz defense, the aggressive off the line, uh, the French, South Africans, maybe Dave Rennie's group. And then you have um, Ireland trying to build intricate patterns on attack. Um, I think it's it looks good. It's going to take a lot to maintain it through a, a tournament. It looks like that's one of their problems. Um, you have um, England trying to do no name, no number. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no plan. <laughs> different midfield every every single match. Uh, I think 11 consecutive matches is different midfield. So well, it's very difficult to imagine them gelling, even if it's true that there's 200 rucks and we reform and who's 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 there. You, as a player, it makes you feel comfortable to know where you slot. You need to know your role, don't you? And you need yeah. to know what the identity of a team is and how you fit into it. And the coach's job is to know what the identity of his team is going to be. And I think Eddie Jones is just in a difficult spot at the moment where the identity isn't really fully seen or established. Does he, does he fall in love with a, pro a project, uh, like a new trend or something? Like, you know, in the, in the... It's just a hook to carry people along with him, isn't yeah. it? But this so, idea of, of playing with no numbers on your back has been around for 20 years. And Clyde Woodward was... But in, in two years, I mean, he's gone from... So the world, he lost the World Cup final and it seemed to really affect him. Yeah. So he went to a massive defensive kicking, we're going to win the Six Nations a boring way. And then immediately said, no, rugby is moving in a different direction. We're going to, mm. we're going to be attack-based. The attack has not gelled. And now he's only... 15 tests away or less from the World Cup. I don't know where he is. Well, you have to find your identity, as I say, and if you look at the last World Cup, South Africa won it because they found their identity more completely than anybody else. Mm. But it's as simple as that. They mm. went back to what was most South African about their game. Mm -hmm. Defence, kicking, set-piece play. Right, and uh, 18 minutes of brutality. Interesting to me when I look at Ireland and Leinster, which is what Ireland really is, I guess. It's Leinster with a bunch of with a couple other guys. Yeah. They come to breakdowns and they come to um, one-offs in the right body height. Everyone seems to know where they're going, and it looks like it's haphazard because you don't know who's going to get the ball. But everyone's running at the pace you would run if you were carrying. You know, players typically. Uh, don't run as <laughs> quickly if they're not going to get the ball. But it seems like no one really knows if they're getting the ball, so they all act like they, they're getting the ball. Yeah, I mean, the idea is basically to repeat a process quicker with the ball than right. the defense can do without it. At some so point, there will be a gap. Quick rucks, if yeah. you get a guy with one man ruck, if you get a ball where you can get to the edge quicker than they can defend it, then that's an advantage to the attack. And Leinster players all know that if they can keep the ball for a certain number of phases, the defence will wear out quicker than they do. 
And uh, so that is it's a great thing to have in your armoury if you know that you can control a ball and you can actually wear the opposition out by doing that. That gives you a great psychological advantage. It's great to watch. I just wonder about the ability to replicate it for seven, six, seven matches in a row. Well, they may not need to, you know. They don't have to play every game exactly the same. So, Yeah, that'll be the thing. If they can, for them to get to... Uh, Beyond quarterfinals, I would think it'd be to have two separate ways of playing when everything's going wrong and uh, and not when everything's going right. They played in Paris as if, you know, I think you, you saw glimpses of it that it could defeat France. Yeah. It could have, but it's difficult to do that for 80 minutes. With that, that level of ferocity in the tackle by the French is just unbelievable. They were hitting they were hitting the distributor at source. Wouldn't really care if it was one second late either and it wasn't getting uh, wasn't getting blown. Well that's pure Sean Edwards for you. you yeah. So if you put some physical influence over people, they they're less likely to do what they want. Right. So. <laughs> Speaking of physical influence, Robin McBride, he looks like the toughest guy in the world. Is this true? Do you know him well enough? He's to actually say? very genial, yeah. <laughs> He looks like someone who's been in some sort of combat. For I worked years. with Rob around 2006 uh, with Wales uh, yeah. for a period, and uh, of course now he's at Leinster as well. But he's actually a very approachable guy. <laughs> okay. So he's not he's not kind of forbidding as perhaps William Servat. You right. Know, you don't want to be stuck in the middle of a scrum with. Uh, that guy looks scary. I remember the previous Leinster scrum coach was a guy called John Fogarty. And he's now with Ireland, and he said he remembers his first scrum against William Servat because he kind of blacked out for a short period of time before coming to again, such as the pressure. And, right. Uh, Servat was one of those guys who was uh, really uh, a prop in a hooker's jersey. Right. He was a prop with extras, you know, and the French would stick some of the, one of these guys in the middle of their front row, and all of a sudden you found they had one extra man. <laughs> Brilliant. So, if, if you always looked at the way Servat bound up on his props, they were all his, his little companions. They were like his family. Yeah. So they were never really there that's why in their own right. That's why it's weird to watch the French scrum now because they're huge. Yeah. I mean, I always I think of French from time immemorial of being these little squat fireplug guys. You know, now they're actually large human beings, the biggest pack in the world. Um, so. If you, if you ever found yourself tempted to lie about what you do for a living, what would it be? What would you say you were? Um, that's a tough one. Uh, I think I'd be an archbishop instead of a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine myself presiding over a congregation. Well, a bit like the rule, really. Yes, so yes. It's just a different, a different view, isn't it? With so, a very pointy hat. Yeah, with a very pointy hat and with... Uh, Lovely coloured windows above you and singing in the background, <laughs> candles to blow out. Maybe. Lovely. I think I could, I could do that. I'd be a Greek dock worker and I would uh, I would hold a cigarette as if I was murdering it, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah that's what I do. You've got a feature in French films, I think. Yes. yes. Eric Cantona, Mark II. <laughs> <laughs> so some sports have a beautiful um, play, a genre of play, like in the NFL, the the, the, the drop-back quarterback with a long spiral pass that goes for a touchdown is a beautiful thing. Uh, and sometimes it's a beautiful thing uh, because of how close it was to failing. What, in rugby, what is your favorite thing that we do? Your favorite sort of uh, action or... 
I think I'd have to say a good scrum. Oh. I love a good scrum. <laughs> One that goes on preferably for a few seconds and starts without much movement, but then you see backs yeah. beginning to buckle. That and second bow, wave. And all of a sudden a head might pop up or maybe a backside. And, yes. and then you see the power suddenly drill through. I don't think there's anything a finer sight than that. The sounds inside that are amazing. Oh. Like there are... There are utterances that come from a human that I'm not used to hearing in any other context than that. When you start to be squeezed, when you have that feeling of like, I'm not sure where this is going, it may be going wrong, and you know it. And it's interesting what you say about at first five seconds, three seconds could be very calm, and then there's the second storm. Well, the co coach I played under, he always used to say the scrum is a battle of two or three inches to start with. Right. And if you get those inches, then you might get a meter or two after that. But right. I used to love the scrum. I used to play behind a tight head prop. And the feeling of a good scrum, the sensation, is marvellous because you just feel all the energy pass straight through your back and down through your feet into the earth. Yeah. If you're in the right position, of course. Uh, exactly. You get all eight men doing that at the same time. I don't think there's any greater sense of sort of mutual support, you know. But they always slap in your hand when you're locked, like, hey, not there. <laughs> <laughs> I was always very careful when I put my hands. <laughs> yeah, the break foot actually seems to be working. Uh, when mm. properly applied by a referee that's doing it the right way, being strict, it seems to be... Um, Harnessing that in, that that energy just enough and stopping it just enough, where you have really really good scrums. I, I forget which one I watched. The Irish were involved, and I forget which one they were, who they were playing. But it was actually very very good to see scrums evenly contested without the jump, without that early jump. Yeah. yeah. What uh, growing up, who was your favorite Welsh player? Um, I'm kind of supposed to say Gareth Edwards, but I think really my favorite was Delmi Thomas. Oh, okay. He was a, long, a lot from a small Welsh village in West Wales. And he was only about six foot two or six foot three, played some prop as well. But he was just a great line out jumper. And Unassisted? Those, yes, those are the days in which everybody was trying to interfere with you if you were a line out jumper, uh, legally or illegally, mostly illegally. And he was the first hero I had. He had a great long face. He looked like a donkey, actually, but he was a very intelligent man. So. <laughs> Um, and he was Bill McBride's partner for, uh, in the Lions' second row for a couple it's of It's like every farmer will say, you have a lot of horses, but you need one donkey in the pack. Struck up a safe. great uh, uh, friendship with Moff Myberg as well. Oh, okay. So uh, <laughs> you know, that has to be a recommendation. And the day before lifting was actually very key was your ability to use your opponent to lift yourself. <laughs> that was the key. You got your elbow into the neck and actually used that and never looked like a foul. Um, what about any Aussies or Kiwis or Safas you remember? Oh, let me think. Uh, I know you're a big fan of the, the big locks and the big forwards. I, as, a, as far as backs went, I used to love Dave Loveridge, mm -hmm. the New Zealand halfback. I thought he was a marvel because I'd never seen a guy who was comparatively small but could just beat people with speed every time. Right. And I see the same in Aaron Smith as well, you know. That brilliant, brilliant player. The speed of the ball, the speed of the pass. It's much rarer in rugby now that the pass actually beats the man, but and the, he's a guy that And the true the, Kiwi difference, I think, yeah. Aaron Smith. That kind yeah. of giving everyone a half a second extra compared to the other team. Uh, as far as Australians go, I think John Eels as well, because he was the first guy that really showed me that a lot 
didn't have to be a huge guy to right. be successful. And he was a guy that you could see thinking his way through games because he wasn't Absolutely. physically the biggest, but he always managed to make an impact on the game, whether it's winning line-out ball, offloading, kicking goals even. You know? Right. Also, so, also a deep thinker. I mean, when you yeah. actually read what he writes and what he thinks about, and he can, he, he's able to change his opinion. I think that kind of flexible mind is good to have on a team. It's not all just you know lumps. Yeah. Smart guy. Any South Africans you like? Oh yeah, there was a guy called Place Fasaki, <laughs> who was absolutely huge. I'd never seen a man as big as him. And he, he came to Twickenham in a match I went to. It was um, something like Europe against the rest of the world. He was about six foot nine and about well twenty three, twenty four stone, <laughs> and he was just enormous. I mean, his head was massive as well. You know, Flace is meat, right? <laughs> his name was Meat. How meaty, how beefy do you have to be to get that nickname in South Africa? <laughs> and the funny thing was, he was actually playing behind Flippy Fundamerva in that game as well. It was a pretty large unit himself. It's the largest arse in the world. I'm serious, and he gave it to his son. Genetic bicephalus uh, or whatever. There's some kind of word about this. Uh, yeah, I, I always tell people, like, you'll never be scared again. If you grew up in South Africa and you go anywhere else, you're like, mm. yeah, this, the monsters have disappeared. It's okay. I, I remember that, ask because I remember it on the, um, the South African tour of New Zealand in 1981, <laughs> where he didn't play in the first test, but they introduced him in the second. It was the largest pair of shorts <laughs> I've ever seen on a rugby player. And all he did was stick out his ass in the middle of a line-out, and the New Zealand jumpers couldn't get anywhere near the ball. It's like um, Charles Barkley. He said he got most of his rebounds just by using the round mound of his horse. The round mound of You rebound. couldn't find the ball. So uh, you obviously love writing, you love thinking. Uh, what do you think you want to do with that? Do you want to write to the very end, like Nikos Kazantzakis, the great Greek writer who said, I will... At the end, I'll be my fingernails will be bedded into the windowsill. I'll be neighing like a horse, but I'll still be my words will still come out. Yeah, I think I'll go along with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying writing as much as I've ever done, perhaps even more at the moment. So, I've got another book planned. Uh, hopefully, some of the world's greatest coaches will contribute to it, and uh, we'll go from there. Nice. Yeah, I see you're in your book so far: The Iron Curtain, uh, Henry's Pride, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Seeing Red. You've actually you've co-written or you've dug into someone's life yeah. deeply and that was the lens through which you saw the story mm. was a person a club Pontypool whatever so is that <coughs> that the new book going to be like? No this is going to be different it's going to be a series of essays on the future of the game uh, all written by prominent people in rugby um, which I think is appropriate at the moment because the game is a little bit of a crossroads so uh, I'm just going to restrict myself to editing and yeah. uh, see what they have to say and, and put it into a form which hopefully people will find useful. Is there a worry that we're, we're going to plateau, ball and play, set piece, scrum, movement? It's like 100 metres in uh, athletics. You know, at some point it's very difficult to, to get any more ball and play. At some point it's very difficult to... Uh, to find any more gaps than there are. We can tinker with the rules all day long, but yeah. at some point, it's a 38-minute out of 80-minute thing. I think they just got to simplify the game at the moment. You know, the law book is far too complicated. One of the coaches was saying the other day that they're 
58 different possible offences at every scrum. Now, yeah. there shouldn't be. You know you're quoting Rassi Erasmus now. Yeah, there we are. I'm quoting, <laughs> and, I'm he was do, and, and he was doing it not as a, as, a, as a criticism. He was saying this is the world in which refs find themselves. And so the wash-up on Mondays is very difficult for anyone. Yeah. You're going to admit to 25 errors. I think just he's spot the way on, it is. isn't he? He's spot yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. There's far too much for a referee to look, look at now. So yeah. you need to simplify it to a scrum, maybe two or three things. Right. And if those things are satisfied, you play on. But uh, most things in a scrum, for example, can be resolved by whether people stick on their original binds. If they stick on their binds, usually the scrum stays straight. But if they try and move into a different channel, like a, See, a flanker that's coming what up behind Mahomet does. He, 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 gets the, he gets the long bind, and then he creeps <laughs> backward, and then he creeps forward again. It's like a caterpillar. He actually moves his hand. You will watch him, and he'll tweak the armpit. <laughs> the farmer's arm, eh? Yes. The farmer's arm. Hey, it's been great chatting with you. So tonight we're going to see maybe um, an upset, or we're going to see the same old, same old. All of it sets up a really wonderful finish, possibly, in uh, either Le Cronche, or if the Irish do it tomorrow, then it set, sets up a, one of those things where we're doing mathematics and we're trying to figure out who's going to do what. Well, I think France, it's France's to lose now. Sure. You know, so I think they uh, have it in their hands. If they win tonight, then I think that will be. I think I fancy them for the Grand Slam, probably. With French, the French, I'm always waiting to be convinced. I want, I want to see it because yeah. they have a propensity to, to, to shift the bed. But I think um, there's no reason why they shouldn't. So. No, I think they're overdue, aren't they? Yeah, and they have the real pack, the pack you need in tournaments nowadays, where you have. You have 14 guys, yeah. not eight, not six, like Scotland, not five. So we're looking And they've got a to bunch it. of coaches now that aren't afraid to win. So, yeah. Good point. All right. Cheers. We're signing off. Cheers. Sure. <laughs>